Yeah, there you go. You guys know how to worship. So I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church, and I am super honored to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, I'm a psychologist, uh, which means that I do a fair amount of counseling and coming alongside people who are struggling with various issues, whatever's going on for them. I have two teenagers. Uh, both of them are here tonight. I can't actually see you, but you are supposed to be here. Um, and then I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. And my hope is um, that I can speak into the topic of depression. I know it's a heavy one. There's a lot. It's loaded. Um, it's a hot topic in many ways. But to be able to do it justice and have you come out with a little bit of hope in it. So how many of you, have you ever heard of the restaurant Dark Table? Yeah? How many have been? Uh, just raise your hands. A few? Yeah, when I first heard about it, uh, well, I'll explain it to you. So it's this place where full-on restaurant, you get reservations, you get your seat, food, fantastic food, fantastic drinks, and it's all in the dark. So you walk in and you cannot see a single thing as soon as you walk in the door. And so they sit you at your table, you sit down, you've got people all around you, you order your food, and thankfully the chefs in the back, they can actually see. Um, so your food's not coming out tasting gross. But then they come and they serve you, and you take in the whole experience in the dark. And it takes it to another level. The smells, the sight, well, not the sights, but the sounds, everything that goes with it, the tastes that go with it. And it's quite an experience. So when I first heard about it, I was all over it. Um, I wanted to go. I was trying to convince my wife to go. She wasn't that excited. But when I was thinking about it, and I overthink things, I was wondering, well, what do you do if you have to go to the bathroom? well, wait a minute, it's all dark, um, what do you do? But I found out, thankfully, they help you go to the bathroom. Or, I mean, they help you get to the bathroom. They don't help you go to the bathroom, that'd be horrible. But they help you then go do that. And apparently when you're in there, you've got lights and you can actually see. But then the other thing that was coming to mind for me was, well, if we're there and you can't see a single thing and you're there with your friends, what would happen if you check something at somebody? They wouldn't know where it's coming from. So. I was thinking then, okay, I'd be sitting there, I'd have a friend sitting right across from me, order spaghetti with meatballs, something along those lines. Once again, pitch black, and you sit there and kind of grab a meatball, and not just one of those kind of chuck it over sort of things. Like imagine them, they're sitting there, once again, pitch black, just enjoying it, they're chatting away, mm, this is great, no idea what's going on. But then you grab that and you kind of cock it back, like way back. And then all of a sudden, and you don't even have to look around, it's just wha-bam, and it just smacks them right in the face. And imagine that, you're just sitting there and all of a sudden, and, and just goo running down there. And then the other thought that came to mind was, what if I just got my glass of water and just slowly tipped it over, uh, just in their lap, not a big like in their face sort of thing, but just kind of drip it enough to where they're sitting there and it's like, wait a minute, what is that? That's kind of a cold sensation. And then all of a sudden, a big pool of water in their lap. So all that to say, I'm not allowed to go to the dark table. Um, I've been prohibited because I would do that sort of stuff. Uh, but I think it would be a blast. Dark table is a place where you, you can't see anything. And that's the idea. That's the experience. It takes it to another level. And it can be quite exciting. Whereas depression is not. Depression is essentially, it's like you're living in the dark. Uh, it's you've got this gray lens on and everything's shaded with that. And while dark table can be exciting, unless you're the person getting the meatball in your face or the water in your lap, depression's difficult. It's really difficult. And it's something that essentially is all around us. So raise your hand if you or somebody you know, friend, neighbor, um, family member, somebody who's experienced, or you know of somebody who's experienced depression at some point in their life. 
So hands up. Okay, that's almost everybody. It is super prevalent. Um, it's all around us. We can, uh, we can experience it ourselves. Others experience it too, and we see that. But that doesn't mean we understand it. And it also doesn't mean we know what to do with it. So imagine then you have a friend who's going through that. A lot of times we kind of will take that step back because it's, well, I don't want to say or do anything that will upset them. I don't want to make it any worse. I realize how sensitive it is. I don't want to mess this up. We don't know how to enter into it. Um, depression, it is all around us. So in the last few months, um, and this one hits closer to home, there have been a few significant suicides um, in the area. And I realize for some of you, you knew the people. And I imagine it was incredibly devastating for you. There's also been, um, there's that series, The 13 Reasons. Um, I imagine many of you guys have heard of that. And I'm not advocating it by any, or by any stretch of the imagination. But it's been in the news. It's been stuff that's been in your schools as well. And it's just talking about how horrific, how difficult just bullying is, but then also depression, suicide. It can get dark. It can get really dark. And I imagine for some of you, it's, I can't imagine that would happen. Either I knew that person, and I didn't know it was that bad, or I had no idea that was going on. Because with depression, most people aren't running around just sharing, this is exactly how I'm feeling right now. A lot of times, you're pulling back from people. It is a hot topic, but like I said a minute ago, you don't necessarily know how to deal with it and how to enter into it. So my hope for tonight is let's understand what is depression, and then also, if we're in it, how do we work on getting out of it? If we know somebody in it, how do we help them? How do we support them in it? So what is depression? Depression, it goes beyond moodiness. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm feeling so depressed right now. Um, and there's, there's clinical depression, but then there's just kind of this low mood. Um, the, little, the ups and downs that come and go, that's not depression. Usually depression, it lasts more than a couple weeks, significantly impacts your school, your relationships, um, yeah, just even concentration and things. So it can be significantly impacting your eating. So you eat too much, you don't eat enough. Um, you sleep a lot. You have a hard time going to sleep. You might be lying in bed and just, you can't shut your mind off. And that can be anxiety too, but sometimes it can be depression where it's just cloudy and you have the hard time just kind of flicking that switch off and going to sleep. Your mood can be low and depressed. Thoughts of harming yourself, thoughts of wanting to kill yourself can be present. Difficulty concentrating, feeling worthless. Sometimes even the things that we used to enjoy doing just don't have that same joy, that same zeal that we had before. So if you're experiencing, I'll say several of these, then you might be depressed. Um, and like I said, there's clinical depression, and then there's, there's kind of this continuum of depression where you have joy on the one end, and then you have kind of clinical major depression on the other end, and then there's just kind of feeling down, dark, blue, and then there's a little bit of joy, and then that, yeah, incredible excitement that you have here. And we all fall in here at different points, sometimes in different points in the day, and sometimes it's different points in just even our life, different seasons. So we're all impacted to a certain extent by depression, yet some more than another. It impacts us in many different ways. I think Michael was talking about, because we're talking about head games here, you have your thinking, you have your feeling, and you have your actions or behavior, what you're doing. And then you have your sensations as well, um, which can be connected with your emotions. When you're experiencing depression, yeah, right away on, a, on an emotion level, it can impact how you're feeling. There can be sadness. There can be loneliness. There can be just this heaviness, this hurt, anger, 
discouragement, hopelessness. On a behavior level, what we do, what we don't do, it can impact you there as well. You might be exploding on somebody and you're just really irritable. You might shut down. You might be crying. You might be sobbing. You might try to harm yourself. You might be crying out. You might get quiet. It looks different for everybody. And then it also impacts how we think. Essentially, what's on our mind? What's going through our head? And that's why we're talking about head games here, because it can be incredibly powerful how we interpret a situation. When we experience depression, a lot of times it's about the past, things that have happened to us, either things that we've done, things that others have done to us, maybe just our circumstances or experiences, but it tends to be a past focus and we kind of drag it with us and it creates a weight, it creates a heaviness. Whereas last week talking about anxiety, a lot of times anxiety is more of a future thing. It's anticipa anticipating this and how would I deal with that? Um, Yet depression, not only can it be a dragging from the past, it can also show up in the present. It's kind of how we see things. And then even the future and how we anticipate and that hopelessness can come in of, I can't see this ever changing. Why would this be any different? Um, have you guys, do you know what I'm talking about when I say polarized sunglasses? Polarized? Okay, yeah, you have the lens. And what it does is it actually works with the colors of the UV spectrum in order to bring about clarity in it. So I'm, I'm thrifty, I'm cheap, I'm a cheapskate. So in terms of sunglasses, I won't spend more than 20 bucks. I break them, I lose them, yeah. And even I don't like the style after a while and I get rid of them. So I get these cheap ones and one day I was sitting out, um, we're out at Lake Osoya, sitting there and just kind of looking out, the beautiful mountains, the sky, the sun was then up there, you could see the green. And I'm looking through my sunglasses and it, it looks fine. And then my brother-in-law said, hey, I got some new sunglasses, try them on. He had polarized sunglasses. I put them on, and right away it was just pop. It was like those 4K TVs, if you don't have one of those. It's just so vivid. Uh, the clarity is fantastic. It was like, what have I been missing out on? It blocked out the sun enough, but you could then still see all the color everywhere. And I took them off, I gave them back to him, and then I put on my sunglasses. And they have that grayish black tinge, and it just kind of dulled everything. It's the same thing. I'm looking out at the exact same thing, but it has a whole different feel or experience to it. And that can be the same thing with depression. It's basically how we view the world, and it's, it's just gray. It's dark. It's discouraging. So I want to do a bit of an illustration here. So if you guys can kill the lights, that'd be fantastic. Okay, so imagine this. You're out in the forest, you're walking along, just kind of looking around. It's a semi-overcast day, kind of like today. And yeah, you're just kind of somewhat hopping along. Things are going pretty good. And then there's a hole in the ground, there's a pit. It's about, let's say, 10 to 15 feet deep and maybe three or four feet across. So not that big at the entrance to it, but incredible depth. You're walking, you're aware of its presence, um, but you kind of forget about it. And eventually, you drop right into it. And you fall all the way down. You kind of brush down on the side and poof, you hit the bottom. And as you immediately look around, somewhat similar to being in this room, it's, you can barely make out much of anything. Talk about that dark lens. It's, I can't see much of anything. And you kind of look up and you can see a little bit of a light. You see that circle at the top of the pit. And so you try to dig your hands, you try to dig your feet in, trying to work your way up out of that pit, but you can't, it's just too deep. 
You might be yelling out, hey, hey, is anybody there? Help. Somebody. Hello. But you, you don't hear anything. You don't notice anything. And you're down there. And you just climb away back at that wall. You try. You jump as high as you can. You're not even close. So imagine that. How, how would you be feeling? Once again, out in the middle of a forest, down in a pit, you don't hear, really see much of anything. You cry out again. It's like, hey, come on, anybody. Hello? Hello? But there's no way out. You try again. So eventually, you just kind of sit down, give up hope that you're going to get out of there. So what would you be feeling? Discouraged? Scared? Sad? Depressed? Lonely? What would you need to get out? So when you're in darkness like that, what you need is light to shine into that darkness. And for that light to come in, you guys can hit the lights. Ooh, you notice that? Man, when your, your eyes have adjusted to the dark sometimes, you get, you get that lens, and then all of a sudden that light comes in. And what's the light? We're needing to invite Jesus into this. We're needing to invite the word, truth, life into the midst of darkness. Because as we're down there, as we're looking around, there isn't much except for that little bit. But all of a sudden that light comes in, man, you almost can't see anything. It's powerful. It's incredibly powerful. And so a primary source of light in our life is the word, scripture. A lot of times we're in that darkness, we distance ourselves from that. We might even pull back from church, pull back from worship. We move away from the light, and it's so backwards, because what we need to be doing is stepping into it. So what do I do is just unpack a little bit from Hebrews 12, uh, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let me quickly pray for you guys as we unpack this passage. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the youth that are here. I thank you for the incredible energy that they bring and the honor that it is to be able to come alongside them tonight. I thank you that they're here. I just think of so many youth that this might be the last place that they'd want to be, yet they get it. And God, I ask that you would speak loudly to them tonight. For those who are in darkness, that you would shine your light on them, that they would see some hope. For those who know people in the darkness, that you would encourage them, challenge them to come alongside to support the people who are in need. Holy Spirit, just work through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to unpack this a little bit with you, and we're going to get practical in the midst of it. So the first part talks about laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Sometimes when you're down in that pit, it's just heavy and it's dark. And even if there was a way out, you sometimes feel like there's, you don't even have the energy or the motivation to get out. You're so weighed down. So it really starts with right away admitting, I'm struggling. I'm either I'm depressed or I'm, I'm in that darkness right now. And then it's followed by becoming aware of what got me here. What's weighing me down? 
And there are a couple different ways of looking at that. You can look at that biologically. So it might be just as simple as I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping well, I'm not exercising. Um, I might have health concerns. I could have a thyroid issue, or let's say it's I just don't have as much serotonin in my brain. It can be biologically based. And in those cases, man, tell a parent, tell a doctor, um, yeah, get the support that you need. However, a lot of times, it's circumstantial. And so you know when it started. And it's almost down to, I remember when this event happened, and all of a sudden, kind of that darkness came into my life at that point, and it shifted things, it changed things. It can be what we've done, something we're carrying. Maybe we've hurt somebody. Maybe we said or did something we shouldn't have, or we pulled away from somebody when they needed us most. And there can be that guilt, that shame. Basically, it's clinging on to us and weighing us down. Sometimes it can be what others have done to us. Yeah, maybe somebody hurt us. Maybe we just weren't taken care of, we were made fun of, we were neglected, avoided. Sometimes it can be events that impact us too. It could be even as we were talking about recent deaths of people that you care about. It can be a house fire, it can be moving, it can be a parent's divorce, whatever it might be. But these are the things that they have a, a weight to them and we carry those with us. And if we keep those to ourselves, they just weigh us down. And they keep us from then taking steps forward, taking steps up and out of that pit. So we need to be aware of what may be causing us to feel depressed. Then we can actually do something about it. And most of the time, we need others to support us in this, to guide another counselor, mentor, parent, a good friend, somebody who can just listen to us, enter into that with us. The next big thing after admitting and becoming aware is to invite someone in. We need to bring someone in or some people in in order to be able to take some steps out. If we go back to the pit analogy, you're in there, you're not getting out unless somebody comes in to rescue you from there. But you have to allow them to come in. And it sounds funny, but imagine you're then in the pit. There are some times where somebody could be walking right above. You look up at the, at the light and the hole there and you know they're there, but you actually don't say anything. Either you've been in there far too long and you know what, I don't have hope that they'd help me. Or I'm worried I'd cry out and they would just keep walking. Or sometimes we just cover up and we actually get further down in there. We put a face on and pretend everything's okay. We don't want anybody to know about that. We feel guilt, we feel shame around it. Although I imagine that there's a part of you that wishes that somebody would come in. Thing is, there's a very real spiritual battle going on and Satan wants nothing more than to get you alone and just to put you in a corner, pummel you, uh, bully you, and just scream lies at, out at you. He came for a few different reasons. He came to steal, kill, destroy, and lie. He's the father of lies. He wants to enter in and he wants to, you guys remember uh, cartoons where they'd have an angel and a demon on one side? And basically it's the demon then whispering lies in there and sometimes shouting and screaming lies to you. And it might be you're worthless, you're flawed, you're dirty, you're never gonna get out of this. And we have to recognize those are lies. Those are absolute lies. But a lot of times we believe them. We let them in. We absorb them. The thing is, how do we know that they're lies? Imagine if we go back to that analogy, we take that part off. The only voice we have is just the lie. Worthless, worthless, not good enough, flawed. If people really knew what you've done or what has been done to you, 
man, they'd reject you. You'd be all alone. What is wrong with you? If you just get that again and again, sadly, it becomes truth. It isn't truth, but it feels like truth. But what we need to do is be able to have truth, actual truth, biblical truth, and standing there. It's that light, shining that light into the darkness to where when this comes in, we've got something to counter it. So some of the lies, you're worthless, you're a failure, you're flawed. Well, what does the Bible say about this? What is, what is the truth that comes from that? And some of you need to hear this and let this just resonate for you. You are a child of God. You're a child of God. And sometimes it might be one of those, I know that, yeah, we are children of God. But no, 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 you, you are a child of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. These are all biblical passages. He knew you were going to be born before he even created the earth. And it wasn't, and don't think about this too much, your parents came together in order to create you. That was all intentional. And then, nine months later, you then came into this world, and it wasn't a, what, who's this, Josh? Yikes, what are we going to do with him? He orchestrated that years and years and years and years before. And so when you came into the world, he was just as excited because he's your heavenly father. And he was proud of you just for who you were coming into the world because he created you and he doesn't make mistakes. And then when you came into the world at that point, he breathed life into you. And he wasn't then done there. He created a plan for you. And he always had a plan for you. And he has a will for you. And yes, he's got a will for all of us, but he has a specific will for each one of you. And the beautiful thing is he doesn't just give you that and say, go, run with it. He gives you that, and he says, you're going to need me every step of the way in order to carry this out. You're going to need me to get up out of that pit, because there are going to be times where you're in that darkness. And he's doing that for every single one of you. He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do everything that he's calling us to. So these lies that then weigh us down run counter to the truth of he came to bring freedom. He came to bring life and life abundantly. And how do we know this? We need to be soaking in it. We need to be saturating ourselves with it. That's why I love good worship. Man, you get those songs in your head, you're going to be humming them later. You, those words come out. But it can be just the same on the other side, that soul, kind of soul-sucking type songs where it's just in there, that becomes truth, and it weighs us down. But man, we have worship songs then coming in. It's, it's just rolling. And I can't tell you how many times where I've either been discouraged or I was just in a good place, but it took me to an even better place when all of a sudden a song lyric comes in and God's just reminding me of his power, of his presence. But you need to be around it. You need to expose yourself to it. A long time ago, I worked at an amusement park. I lived in Texas and uh, they had a Six Flags there. It was called Astro World. And so my job was, I was almost like a carny where there was this basketball game and it wasn't like your typical rim. It was this kind of oval shaped thing. Um, oblong, so to speak, or I remember some guy came up to me, he's like, what? That thing's oblong. That's not a circle. I was like, I know, I know, I know. And they would pay five bucks and they'd get two shots and they could win one of these huge stuffed animals. On a side note, if you ever go to a carnival and you notice like an Xbox or huge stuffed animals, you're never going to win. They need to make money. Walk away at that point. So yes, it was, it was a light scam, but you could actually win. Um, so it wasn't that bad, I think. Um, so they would come up and they would, they would shoot, uh, shoot baskets in there. And so I'd be grabbing money left, right, and center. I'd have a money belt, grabbing this, giving them change. Then there we go, next. Okay, yep, yeah, I hear the basketball, shoot those. You want to go again? What about 20? I'll give you extra shots for that. Okay, there you go. 
in doing that, um, there was a time where somebody came into the park and they had counterfeit money. They were trying to pass out counterfeit 20s. And we noticed it. And how did we notice that? We were touching the real thing again and again and again and again. So all of a sudden we came across something and this has a bit of a different feel. It looked fantastic, but it had a different feel to it. And the only way we knew that is we were so, so enmeshed, immersed, exposed to the real thing that when a fake came along, we could pick it out like that. And it's the same thing with our thoughts. It's the same thing. When we're in the darkness and those lies come, we don't recognize it unless we have truths to go with it. And how do we get those truths? We need to just immerse ourselves in the word. We need to bring that to ourselves daily, nightly. And another way of doing that is we can do that on our own. That's our personal quiet time. But we also need other people. We need to allow others to come in, as I was talking about a minute ago. And they can come. They can encourage us. For some of you, this might be one of those, okay, you know what, I'm on that continuum or scale. I'm on the joy end. I don't think I've ever been in a pit. Things are great. And that's awesome. And I'm not saying you just wait. You're going to be in a pit before you know it. That's not what this is about. By God's grace, sometimes people don't get that low. They don't get into that place. But we do dip down a little bit. But if you're not in that place right now, what you need to do is, actually, let's do this for a second. Just think about somebody you know currently who, they don't have to be clinically depressed or suicidal. They might just be down. They might be struggling. They might be going through something. They're hurting. There's pain in their life. So just take about five or ten seconds. Think of that person. Could be a friend, a family member. That person needs you to come into their pit. They may have others, and that's fantastic. But there are a lot of people out there who don't have somebody down there with them, just like as we were doing that exercise and it was dark in there. That's their experience. Your job is to meet them there. And I realize that there are barriers. It's like I was saying earlier, I, I don't want to say or do anything. What if I say the wrong thing? Um, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to do when I'm in there. The thing is, your biggest job is to get down in there with them. That's step one. Sometimes we enter in and it's like, just stop it, pull out of it. Why don't you just smile? If you smiled more, maybe things would be different. Or just get over it, come on. And it's from a good place. It's like, I don't want you to feel this way anymore. But it's not helpful at all. It's like yelling down into a pit and they can't even hear you. It's like, I can't hear you. Well, how are they going to hear you? You've got to get down in there with them. And so let me tell you quickly just about Job. You might have heard, uh, there's a book of Job in the Bible. Job, everything was great. He had, he was righteous before God. He had livestock, animals, business was great. He was married, he had family, and things were just really good for him. And then all of a sudden, he started to lose everything. His livestock, his animals, they all died. He found out that his servants were then killed. And then one by one, his children were killed. And that's horrible enough, even just losing one child. But imagine that, all your children, all your livestock. So basically, his business is gone. He's lost his children, his workers. And then all of a sudden, he gets these incredible sores all over his body. Horrible. In incredible pain. And in Job 2, 11 through 13, it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. 
And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And that's just culturally how they grieved at that time. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Seven days and seven nights. So I'm not even necessarily saying that, like, just go sit with them and be with them for a week on end, day and night. Sometimes it's just a moment. Sometimes it might be an evening. But come alongside, enter into what's going on for them. And the beautiful thing is, they said nothing. Why is that? They saw his suffering was great. They saw, there's nothing I can say to bring his livestock back. There's nothing I can say to resurrect his kids, his servants, to take the sores off of him. There's nothing I can do. And that's the risk. Sometimes it's like, I don't know how to help. I'm not. I'm just going to step away from this. This feels too big. But what did they do? They stepped in. They didn't say anything. They just sat with him, and their presence was more than enough. They showed up. They showed up, and that's what he needed. And it didn't fix it. And I hope there's a bit of relief in there, because that's the risk. I need to say the right thing. No, you don't need to say anything. Sometimes, by God's grace, he gives you a word of encouragement. But the best thing you can do is show up, shut up, and just listen, and just hear them. And then you can pray with them. That can be a huge encouragement. Pray that God would comfort them. Pray that they would experience joy. They would experience peace and maybe even patience, especially if God chooses for this to stay for a little bit. So the next part of the verse, it says, run with endurance the race set before us. Running a race requires movement. No race is one in one step, but it is one, one step at a time. And so every step, you're working your way out of that pit. And a lot of times for depression, it's almost like you're climbing that mountain, but you've got roller skates on. The thing is, if you're trying to do that on your own, you might have a bit of energy, you might have a bit of motivation as you're going, but as soon as you stop to rest, you start backpedaling, you start going back, and it can be incredibly discouraging. Imagine doing that again and again. Like, really imagine that. You had your skates on, you were doing that. Eventually, you just stop. Why bother? Why would I do this anymore? I have no hope that this is going to make a difference. But what difference might it make if somebody else came around you? Let's say they put their hand on your back and they were pushing you, and if you had to rest, they'd be there and they'd kind of hold you for that second. And then when you've got that energy, they're then pushing you, they're encouraging you. It's like running a race and you've got the people on the side, yeah, you can do it, keep going. One step, it might be sharing something that's happened in your life. It might be confessing a sin. It might be confessing something that you've done to somebody else or going to make it right with them. It might be seeking forgiveness for something that somebody did to you in the past. Once again, the more you carry these things, the more they're going to weigh you down. And the more you carry them on your own, the harder it's going to be to then get up, to work your way out of that. So you may need to go to somebody and share it with them. And then, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the next part of the verse. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, having our sights set on him. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the great physician. Who better? Invite Jesus in. This often comes before inviting others in, but sometimes it can come afterwards as well. But invite Jesus right into the midst of what you're experiencing. And he can bring life. He can bring change. He knows what you're going through. Man, he's endured it himself. Even if he didn't, he's an all-knowing God and he gets it. 
but he totally gets it. Jesus came down. Remember in the garden? He was like, um, how many of you were in the, uh, I was going to say Black Friday, uh, the Good Friday service? <laughs> it's not a sale. It's not a good thing. The, the Good Friday service. How many of you guys were in there? Some. Or, or even seen Passion of the Christ. When you go through that and you slow it down, you can feel the weight. He's sweating blood. He's experiencing the depth, the anguish then there. He's felt pain. Man, when he was up on the cross, he's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that distance. He's been there. They call him the wounded healer for that very, very reason. He's experienced that so he can more fully enter in and understand and meet us in it. So trust him with your pain. And then the next part of the verse says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy set before him endured the cross. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Those two things should not be in the same sentence. Joy endured the cross. Yet they are. But think about this. Jesus, he was seated in heaven. Seated in heaven next to God. Bliss. No more sin. No more shame. No more torment. No more pain. No more sorrow. And then there was peace. There was love. There was joy. Everything. He was there in that. And he chose to leave that. He chose to leave that place to come down to our pit. He came down to earth. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And he did that knowingly. He knew how it was going to be for us. He left that place to meet us in it. And he knew he was going to be betrayed. He was going to be mocked. He was going to be spit on. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be killed. Undeservingly, he knew all of that. Yet, he found joy. How? He found purpose in it. He knew why he was doing what he was doing. He knew why he was in what he was in, in the pit. He could see that bigger picture. He could see that be the beyond. Because since the beginning of the world, essentially sin came in through Adam and Eve. And God didn't say, that's it, I'm done. Let's just take the earth and get rid of that. He created a plan right there in that moment to send Jesus down, to do exactly what we talked about, live a perfect life living in the pit with us, to then die on the cross, but not stay dead. He came back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit so that whoever believes in him will then be saved, which is an opportunity to come out of our sin pit for eternity. That if we invite him into that, we then will be saved so that for eternity we can live in the light. We can be in heaven where Jesus was seated on high. And we have the hope of that. And Jesus knew that. He knew that he had to go through that suffering. He knew that he had to be beaten he had to be broken, because if he didn't, then that end goal wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have had salvation. We wouldn't. But he created that opportunity, and that helped him endure. It's kind of like a, a UFC fighter. If they're then going into their next uh, cage match, a lot of times they're going to have a picture of their opponent on the wall, because they're having to do really strict dieting, getting up early, uh, heavy cardio, heavy weights. They're having to take punches, all of that. And there are going to be times where it's like, I don't feel like doing this anymore. But then they look, and it's like, that's why I'm doing it. And that helps them actually endure, to persevere. Romans 5, 3 through 6 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So he's building character in us through these times. As we're in that pit, he's doing something there. He's building that character. He's building that hope then within us. 
And we need hope to be able to step out of it. We can get so bogged down and discouraged. And if we can't see that light, we just give up. We turn within ourselves. But if we look to, look to him, look to Jesus, bring him into it, then we can have some of that light. If we bring others into that, we can experience some of that light too. We bring the truth of his word, that light starts to come in, and all of a sudden it's not so dark in there anymore. We can have hope. So as we close out the message for tonight, I want to challenge you. So a minute ago I asked you to think of somebody who might be struggling. It might actually be you. But if it's not you, let's say it's somebody outside of you who's struggling, in pain, going through something that you know. My challenge to you is, if you know they're hurting, show up. Show up. Show up and shut up. Pray for them. Be there. Listen. You don't have to say the right thing. If you're hurting, then open up. You can't carry this on your own. Kind of the implied question is, how's that working for you? And my guess is it's not. And I understand it's terrifying to then open up to somebody else. But that's where that freedom is. That's where the power is. That's how the light then comes in. And then open up to Jesus. Invite him into the midst of that. So as we move into prayer, we need to recognize that we are promised when we call on the name of Jesus, he then receives us, we receive him, we are then saved, and we get the Holy Spirit to be with us, the wonderful counselor who sits on our shoulder and speaks in that still small voice the truths that we need to hear in order for us to fight against uh, the lies, fight that head game battle that's going on. And, the, and Scripture says, Ephesians 3.20, to him who can do immeasurably more than we can think or ask by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what are you asking for tonight? What are you going to ask him to do? For some of you, it may be, I need you to save me. I need you to save me. I'm in the sin pit. And if I don't ever come out of this, I'm going to be in this pit then forever. And I need hope. I need freedom. I need salvation. Jesus, I believe you came. You died on the cross for me to give me life. And not just life, life abundantly, an eternal life with you, where I get to then have that hope in eternity where no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, joy, peace, love for eternity. I want that. For some of you, you may be asking him, I just, I just want joy. I just want something. I'm saved. I, I just need some of your joy, one of the fruits of the Spirit. For some of you, it's to give you courage to invite somebody else in. And for some, it's the courage to help you come alongside somebody in pain. Maybe you've wanted to. There's just been that barrier. But it's God help me. And the beautiful thing is God gives us words. He gives us the words to speak when we don't know. And the beautiful thing is, as the great physician, he knows their condition and exactly what they need in that moment. And you just being there is an opportunity for that. And sometimes he might whisper in your ear, say this, say that. And that's exactly what they need. And the beautiful thing is it's not generated by you. It's him, and you're just allowing him to do that. Be a minister to those around you. So we're just going to take a quick minute, uh, if you'll bow your heads with me, to pray quietly. What are you asking him to do? To save you? To give you joy? Give you courage to invite someone in or help you come alongside someone? So let's give you a minute just to pray in your head.
God, I pray that you would be with each of the youth here tonight. You promised that you are near to the brokenhearted. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Nothing can separate us from your love. You are the God of all comfort, and I ask that you would meet them right where they are right now. You know the depths of their pain. You know the depths of the darkness far beyond what they do. And you care. You love them. And I ask that you would do that. Give them a strong, felt sense of your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, come over them. Encourage them. Bring that hope, Lord. And for those who are praying for somebody else, who know somebody else that they could enter in, give them the courage, Lord, to approach them and just say, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Or, hey, I've noticed that you've been kind of down lately. How you doing? Do you want to talk? And give them words if there are words for that person. But if not, help them to just shut up and listen. God, guide them in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we enter into worship, I want to invite uh, Sam to come on up here. Um, so Sam is a good friend and met him, I don't know, two and a half years ago, something like that. December 6, 2015. Uh, Sam was in a pit. Uh, Sam was in a really dark place, and it has been awesome, and I won't give away anything, but uh, he allowed Jesus to come in. He allowed that light to come in, and there's been incredible healing and hope in his life, and so I just want to give him a few minutes to share that with you. Hey, uh, so my name is Sam. I'm one of the leaders here. I'm basically going to be reading off this script the entire time, because if I don't, I end up swaying and going somewhere else. Um, basically, um, I was in depression for most of my life, uh, 16 years in depression, so that's more time than some of you have been on this earth, so it's a pretty long time. Um, it's funny, because Josh was talking about the image where you, depression is like a dark place, and I had this similar thing, but I didn't know he was going to say it, so it's kind of weird. Um, so like, depression is like a pitch black abyss. And I kept running around for answers, looking to my left and to my right, but I never found them. I kept looking within myself for answers and never found them there either. So I'm just gonna dive right into it. So I was born to a Sikh family of four. Um, my dad, my mom, and my younger brother. Uh, my dad was cheating on my mom from the get-go and he kept us going as long as I've known. Um, he was physically and verbally abusive towards my mom. Um, he used to say things like, she's only useful for what she has between her legs. Um, he used to give me advice on girls and um, his advice was like, it was the worst. It's like girls are like t-shirts. It's good to have a few in your closet so you have a different one to wear every day of the week. That's the kind of role model I had in my life. And so I was this person I was supposed to look up to. And around the age of five, he started to physically and verbally abuse me, um, basically like every day. I didn't understand why, so I started to blame myself. I started hating myself because I felt like something was wrong with me. And um, I fell into depression at the age of six. And so it was a rough time because at six years old, I'd look at other kids, they're playing with their parents, they're having a good time, and I'd be sitting inside and just crying all day. And uh, I got to elementary school and I was hoping to make friends, but um, I got bullied right off the bat, and it was like the worst thing. And so I was getting bullied at school, and I was getting bullied at home, and there was no escape for me. And um, in grade five, I met my best friend through hockey, and um, he was a Christian dude, and he's one of the best people I've ever met in my life. Um, he was always there for me, always there to pick me up, always there to hang out. And we used to do everything together. We used to skate together. We used to go down to White Rock Beach together and just hang out. And um, during this time, abuse at home remained pretty constant. 
at times things escalated. I remember this one time my mom and dad were arguing and um, eventually my dad snapped and he started to beat her. And um, like he started pulling her hair and he's punching her and it's, it's brutal and so I tried to step in. I'm like 12 years old at the time, maybe 11. And um, I tried to punch him and get him off but he just punched me and pushed me away and he kept beating her. And my younger brother, he's crying and he's screaming and um, I just go and hold him and I'm covering his eyes. And I'm, as I'm covering his eyes, I'm watching all this go down. And man, it's just, it's so hard to forget because I honestly thought he was gonna kill my mom in that moment. And um, he eventually left, he stopped, and I ran over to my mom and I held her and I cried with her. And um, in that moment, she made me promise that I'd never turn out to be like my dad. And um, I'm a person, if I make a promise, I intend to keep it. And so I made that promise that day and it was, it was a big moment in my life and it's something I'll never forget. And um, so like back to elementary school, um, my mom used to say, don't talk to the boys, talk to the girls, because they're nicer. But um, that was so wrong. <laughs> uh, in grade seven, I went to the water park on a field trip, and I bumped into this girl by accident. I apologized, and then she turned around and said, watch you fat and bleep. And this was grade seven. I didn't know people knew those words, and so it rang in my head all summer. And she didn't say bleep, by the way. It was the actual word. <laughs> so um, when I got to high school, I tested the existence of God, so like I was believing in a God, but I didn't know what God. And so I prayed day and night for depression to leave, for bullying to stop, for abuse to stop, but things just got worse. And so at that point, I became an atheist. I gave up on God. I'm like, you know what? You don't exist. Forget this. And at that point, my bullies changed from guys to girls. And so girls used to say like, the worst things to me. They attacked my appearance and self-esteem. And they said things like, no girl's ever going to want to date you because you're so ugly and things like that. And so eventually I started to believe them. I started to believe all these lies. And I used to go home and I used to look at myself in the mirror and I just hated what I saw. And eventually there came a point where I literally taped a garbage bag over my mirror because I just didn't want to see myself anymore. And um, in grade nine, I was sitting in engineering class. Um, we, were, we were making airplanes out of balsa wood and we were using razor blades to cut them. And um, one day I decided to take a razor blade home and I got home that night, I just stared at it for a couple hours. I didn't know what to do. I was just like, whatever. And then eventually I picked it up and I just cut myself. And I started cutting myself every day. And it was just to feel something different. I was tired of feeling depressed. I was tired of feeling sad. So I wanted to feel pain instead. And so I used to carve words into my body, things like that. And then eventually I got built up a tolerance to the pain. And so I'd literally pour salt into the wound to make it hurt more. And so that carried on until a couple years ago when I finally stopped. And then the next few years of high school, I tried my best to avoid people, endure the bullying. I used to do things like eat lunches in the bathroom, literally to avoid people. Um, at home, I'd spend most of my time in my closet just crying and being angry at myself. And I blame myself for everything still at this point. And as, um, as graduation came around, I was pretty excited because I'm going to be leaving all these people and um, I'm not going to see all these bullies again. And I had plans with my best friend to hang out all summer and just chill and just go down to the beach and whatnot. And then a couple days after grad, he told me he's heading to Toronto for the summer to hang with his family. And I was, I was pretty mad. I was like, man, like we had these plans. I lashed out at him and cussed him out. And that was our last conversation. And then um, a couple weeks later, I got a phone call from his uncle. And he's like, um, Connor, he lost his battle to cancer. And um, it, it destroyed me in that moment. I didn't know what to feel. I felt so guilty. And for the next while, like, I, I hated myself for that. And then a few weeks later, I got this letter from his uncle that my friend had wrote on the day he passed away. 
and um, he wrote that how much he loved me and how like everything we've done together was just awesome and he enjoyed it so much and how I was the best friend he'd ever had. And then he wrote the most like beautiful thing ever. He wrote um, that this wasn't goodbye and that he'd be waiting for me. And at the time, I didn't know what that meant because I wasn't a Christian. And man, like once I became to Christ, it, it blew my mind. I'm like, man, he always knew. He always knew I'd come to him. And um, after that, like I stopped skateboarding. I eventually picked that up again this year. I haven't been to White Rock Beach since. I haven't been to White Rock Beach in almost seven years now. And it's been tough. And after that, I was left with this void in my heart, this void in my life. He was like the only friend I had. So I developed severe anxiety and I couldn't talk to people literally. And so I started university. I took five classes. Um, I failed three of them because I was just struggling so much. And my dad wanted to go, he went on to call me a failure, call me worthless and whatnot. And um, I was like, whatever, like this has all been here my whole life, it's nothing new. And during that same time, I was hanging with this one girl. And so she used to cheer me up and we'd hang out and whatnot. And um, I eventually developed feelings for her. And so one day she was like, I know you have feelings for me. And I'm just like, well, you're kind of frozen at that point, you don't know what to say. And so I say like, yeah, whatever. And then she's like, you have the greatest heart I've ever seen in a guy. And I'm like, that's awesome, like I'm doing good here. Then she says, but you're not up to my standards. And I was like, whoa, like, all right. And so I was pretty upset. I was pretty insecure after that. I went home that night. And um, actually after that, I developed this severe anxiety from girls. So I literally couldn't talk to girls forever until like last year. And so um, I went home that night and I looked at myself in the mirror again. I just I was disgusted with what I saw. And so I wanted to change fast. And so I stuck my fingers in my mouth and I puked up whatever was in my stomach and thus began my eating disorder. And so I did that a lot. And over the course of the next month, I lost 40 pounds and um, it was huge. And so that carried on until about like last year when I finally got over that. And after that, I'd gotten back into rugby. It was like six to seven games in the season. I tore my MCL. And I was on T3s for pain, and, but they weren't enough. So I made a couple phone calls. I got into Oxycontin, which is basically morphine. And I was taking about 200 milligrams a day, whereas the average dose is between 10 to 40. So I was binging hardcore. And I was basically numb to all my pain in my life. I didn't feel anything. And so I was basically like a zombie. I was lifeless. And in the summer of 2011, I came home one night, and I saw my supply was running low. And I asked my guy for more, but he was like, he's out of the game. And so I'm like, you know, what am I going to do now? I need this. And so I decided to take all the 10 pills I had left with the intent to overdose, which is about 400 milligrams on top of the 200 I was already on that day. So 600 milligrams, which is more than enough to overdose. And I took it and I laid down in bed and I just waited and I waited and my heart started to fade. My heart rate got lower and lower and lower. And I'm like, this is it. I'm gone. And then I passed out. I woke up 18 hours later, just to brightness. I honestly thought I went to heaven. But I woke up in my bedroom, and my mom had opened the blinds. So it wasn't the, it wasn't the best thing. But um, in that moment, I was so upset. I was so depressed. I couldn't even kill myself. But man, I gave up on God, and I gave up on myself. But God never gave up on me. And following that, like I started to drink a lot of cough syrup with codeine, which is basically like Oxy as my substitute. And I started seeing a psychiatrist too, and he had me do this like suicide diary thing where I'd keep track of all my suicide thoughts. And I was averaging about 12 heavy ones a day. So I literally didn't want to be here at all. And um, 
one day I was at my friend's house in the spring of 2012, and um, on, sorry, I was at his house and we were just chilling. And he's like, "You want to see my dad's gun collection?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure. I love guns. Why not?" And so I get down there, and at the time I'm not thinking suicide, but um, at that point something clicked in my head. I'm like, "Yo, there's guns here. This is gonna be easy." And so as he's looking, he's explaining his guns. His dad had been cleaning guns earlier on the table and they were pistols, so they're clean, unlocked, ready to go. And so I told my friend to get a gun from across the room, off the wall, and as he did that, I took one of the pistols and I took an ammo from the tub, took a bullet from the tub, and I put them in my pockets and I hid them. And so when he brought the gun over, I checked it out for a second, and I was like, whatever. And then I'm like, I gotta go to the bathroom. And um, I got to the bathroom and I loaded the gun and I put it to my head and I looked in the mirror and in that moment, I felt this sense of relief. I felt joy for the first time in my life. And uh, I pulled the trigger. The gun went click, but there was no boom. I pulled it again, it went click, but there was no boom. And I didn't know what was going on at this point. I'm like, okay, this is weird. So I took the bullet out, inspected the gun, everything was fine. Put it back in, pulled the trigger at least 20 more times, and all it did was click. And it made no sense to me, because I'd fired guns all my life, and I never had a misfire, ever. And I took the bullet out, and this time I inspected the bullet, and it had a bad primer. And the chances of that are roughly one in a thousand. So, I mean, I gave up on myself again. I gave up on God, but God never gave up on me. And following that, I developed an alcohol problem. I was drinking a lot of liquor, and I basically jumped from one substance to another, <laughs> to the next. And so I went camping up in Harrison, uh, May of 2013. And I was sitting there, I was drinking this beer by myself, and um, something in my heart just told me to stop. I didn't know what it was. And in that moment, I spilled the rest of my beer, and that was that, and I haven't drank a drop of alcohol since, and it's been, it's been crazy. But the next few years, I kept fighting, I kept struggling, but I kept going. And in August of 2015, I went to Calgary to see some family with my mom and my brother, and when we got back, my dad had taken all his stuff, he'd left us a note, and that was that. He abandoned us, and I haven't heard from him since, and it broke my mom's heart, but for me, it was, it was kind of a relief. And so, in that same year, November 30th, um, I'm like really good at memorizing dates. So November 30th, 2015, I was talking to someone from one of my classes, and they told me about Village Church. And I, kinda, I mean, I kind of took it in. I was like, ah, whatever. I went home and I thought about it more, and I'm like, hmm, church. That's a lot of white people. Probably not the best thing for me. <laughs> and so uh, two days later, I had a major nervous breakdown. I was crying. I didn't know what to do, who to call. Like, I didn't have any friends. And so I remembered, like, church. So I called Village Church, called the office, and I got in touch with Josh Cruz. And so we talked on that phone for an hour, and I remember Josh tells me so many times that he never picks up the phone, but something was prompting him that day. And it was, it was huge, and so he invited me to church that following, the same week, and so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll show up. I'm like, what do you look like? He's like, oh, I'm white, I got brown hair, I'm average height. I'm like, okay, like, that shouldn't be too hard. And so um, I went to church that following Sunday on December 6th, and uh, Josh didn't think I'd show up. <laughs> he had a lot of faith in me. But um, yeah, I showed up and like, I was terrified, but I wanted to make a change in my life. I wanted to take that first step out. And so I walked in and I was so scared because there's so many white people and I'm like, I don't know where I am, this is so weird. And so it was the worst thing ever. And then I found Josh eventually, because I mean like every guy in there literally looked like Josh. His description was every guy, and so I'm like, okay. And then um, we went to service and listened to what Mark had to say and I was intrigued, I was curious. And I was like, man, this is, this is kind of weird, this is kind of cool. But then after the service, Josh and his wife did like one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me. 
they invited me over for lunch, and um, I'll never forget that. It was it was so huge for me, and um, I went over and I was I was kind of scared because I'm like, man, these white people are having me over. Like now that I've seen the movie Get Out, I'll never look at white people the same. <laughs> and so, and it's funny because his eldest son Brad thought I was gonna rob them. <laughs> so I mean, I guess we were all scared. <laughs> kind of racist, but whatever. <laughs> and um, I kept going back to church, and um, on December 19th of 2015 at 3.45 p.m., I gave my life to Jesus. <laughs> I started to dive into faith, and I began praying constantly for the chains of depression and anxiety to just leave and be shattered. And so Along with that, I was making an active effort to actually get out of that place. I was actually trying to make friends, I was trying to be social, I was trying to share with people in my life what was going on. I wanted out more than anything because I'd been stuck there forever. But um, so come mid-February of last year, like the chains were just shattered. It was the most amazing feeling in my life. I was finally running free. And the thing is, like, this is an ongoing battle. I still struggle with things. So I still struggle with like body image. It's still a struggle for me. I mean, in the last year, I've lost 130 pounds, but it's still a struggle. And um, I can't take thing, things like pictures, I can't take. And so Michael wanted to do headshots today for, of all the leaders, and I was like, no way, that's not happening. And the thing is, if I look at a picture of myself, I start to pick it apart. So I literally don't look at any pictures of myself, and I can't take compliments. That's honestly a kryptonite for me. I can't do it, because people fed me all this negative stuff throughout my life, so that's all I believe now. So it's hard for me to say thank you, but I, I force myself to say it, even though I don't mean it. But I keep doing that. And then this year, I nearly lost my faith. I stopped going to church for about two months or so, a little over two months, and that was not too long ago. But seeing you guys weekly, like here, just kept me hanging by a thread. And eventually, God sparked a fire in my heart, and it's been burning since. And the thing is, like we often talk about how leaders play such a big role in your lives, but we never talk about how big of a role you guys play in our lives. And the thing is, like, you guys give me a sense of family for the first time in my life. And um, you guys, like, aren't just youth to me or kids or whatever. Like, you guys are my little brothers and sisters, and that's how I see you guys. And that's, that's what I see every week, and I love you guys so much, and, like, I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. And the thing is, like, I let depression and anxiety define me for most of my life. It's all I'd known. And that's some of you today. Like, maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's something else, but you hold on to things, but you've gotta let it go. You've gotta fight each and every day, because each day the enemy's coming, and he's coming hard. He's not gonna stop. But the thing is, you've gotta keep going. Jesus said, you'd be hated and persecuted for my name's sake, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. And that's the thing, you've gotta take heart. You've gotta surrender yourself to him, and you've gotta hand over all your pain. He wants you to relieve your burdens, but you have to be willing to leave the darkness to step into the light. And that was with me. It was with that pitch black abyss I was in. I kept looking to my left and to my right for answers, but I never found them there. The only direction I didn't look was up. And that's where all the answers were. That's where the light was. And it's like, if you look to others, you'll get distressed. If you look within, you'll get depressed. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. And that was, that's not original, by the way. <laughs> Just saying. And the thing is, you have to want it more than anything. What, whatever it is you're holding on to, it could be hurt, pain, loss, guilt, shame, whatever it may be, you have to be willing to step out of your comfort zone and be like, you know, I need help. This is what I'm going through. If you don't, no one's gonna be able to help you because we can't read minds. And there are people here who love you so much, more than you'll know. There are leaders here who wanna pray for you, who wanna love on you, but for them to do that, you have to step out. 
You're holding on to these things that bring you down, that are disrupting your relationship with Jesus. And tonight you say, I want out. Tonight you let it go. Tonight you may take that first step. Tonight you say, Jesus, I want you to enter my life and change me from the inside out. It may not happen overnight, but that doesn't mean you give up because you gotta fight each and every day. So I'm just gonna pray for us real quick and then we're gonna respond with worship. Um, Father God, I just thank you for all the hearts in this room, Lord. I just thank you for each and every individual in here. And uh, Father, tonight I know we talked about a heavy topic and depression, something I've struggled with for most of my life. And it's something people are struggling with here today. And it may not be depression, it may not be anxiety, but it may be something else. Father, I just pray tonight that we would step out of our comfort zones, that we would ask for help, that we would share with the person beside us, we would let other people pray for us, that we would welcome you into our life, welcome you into our hurt, into our pain, because you want to take it all, Jesus. You want to take it all. And I just pray that as we respond in worship, that you would just touch our hearts, Lord, those who need it the most, and those who don't know you, Father, I just pray that you reveal yourself to them tonight that you just change hearts and lives are transformed here tonight, Father. And I just pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.